I don't know if I would have articulated it this way at the time. I think energetically you vibrate at a certain frequency. The only things available to you are other things that are at that frequency. You know, we're electricity, so nothing outside the frequency you're vibrating at is available to you when you're at whatever frequency you're at. So I think it changes, like that kind of uh, transformational, group transformational process, it changes your frequency significantly. But it's also that, you know, whatever you focus on expands. This is Show Your Business Who's Boss. Listen in on behind the scenes, unfiltered conversations with my favorite business owner friends who take charge and make their businesses work for them. Don't just be your own boss, show your business who's boss. I'm Pia Silva. On today's episode, I am excited to have badass business owner and former business coach of mine, Iman Khan. Iman and his wife, Afreen, own Red Elephant Inc., where they are on a mission to empower others to make real change in the world by finding their platform and voice. I think of them as the king and queen of live events. And as you can imagine, that means that they have had to pivot tremendously over the last year to help people find their voice and make an impact from behind a screen. Well, they definitely succeeded, and today Aman is going to share some of the strategies that they used to make online events engaging and entertaining and profitable and, most importantly, impactful. I've known Aman and Efrain for almost 10 years, back when they still lived in New York and I was networking all the time. Red Elephant events and programs were one of my go-to places to meet other people and to help me find my voice. So I'm very excited to catch up with Aman today. So buckle up. Here we go. We did over a thousand Zooms last year. You know, we moved everything virtual really fast. Well, sure. It was actually in business-wise, it was our best year in three years. How was that? People just, everyone came out of the woodworks when it was time to pivot. Like, I think people had some sort of relationship to us. Like, we know how to handle crisis or adversity or something. And then as people were moving their events online... Mm-hmm. All of our former clients from event production showed up saying, tell us what to do. So we had a lot of clients come back for programs we didn't even offer anymore. <laughs> and then the programs we did offer, uh, they all seemed, they all grew last year. They all got bigger. Now we're making them smaller again because we don't want to work like that. So you were able to pivot by going kind of back to something you had done previously? What kind of programs are people looking to do? I mean, your whole business is about in-person events. Well, the whole business became about, you know, we had transitioned in the last four years. Like we stopped doing the speaker mastermind. We stopped producing events. It was all just around how to create a movement and how to build a movement and using speaking and live events as one part of that. And that's what we've been teaching, but not anymore. (laughs) Everyone wants to know how to be influential and how to speak and convert. So we just launched the speaker mastermind again and... We've been producing events virtually, which is so great because there's no load in, there's no load out, there's no on-site being on your feet. <laughs> I remember, like, I mean, obviously I learned so much stuff when I did your um, Speak to Profit. Was the program called Speak to Profit? Flight Club. Flight Club. Flight Club. Flight Club. Um, Flight Club. Such a good name. Program, which was years ago and my first foray into speaking 
It wasn't mm-hmm. speak from speaking on the stage, but the idea of making sales from the stage. And one yeah. of the things that I will never forget about it was like you telling me, okay, and then you drop this offer and you tell them, go meet me in the back of the room to sign up. And then you wait and you may not move a muscle until somebody <laughs> else gets up and it's going to be uncomfortable. And you must <laughs> I just remember being like, this is insane, but you're right. You know your stuff. Yeah. <laughs> He who breaks the tension loses the sale. Always Is that it. always true? It's almost always true. Like even in a sales conversation? Yeah, when I have sales conversations over the phones, I drop my price and I just shut up. I've heard that in other places as well. It's true. It just sucks. It's I learned it by reading one of Zig Ziglar's books. I didn't figure this out. This is like I was reading a Zig Ziglar book and he said, you know, when you're asking, when you're at a sales meeting, he talks about being at like across the table at a sales meeting. He doesn't talk about it on the phone. He's like, after you state your price, you just stop talking. You'd be available. You'd be inviting for questions, but you stop talking. So when I read, and Zig Ziglar was like a sales genius. So when I read that in his book, I was like, I'm gonna try this shit out. It worked. Have you been in sales the whole time? No, I worked as a journalist for years. I worked in international diplomacy and politics and Israel, oh. Palestine, and human rights trafficking. And that, that was, was your- my initial career. Oh, why'd you leave? I got sent overseas by the company I was with to go be a journalist in South Asia after the tsunami. So I got to cover that. Soon after that, I started covering the what's known as the Golden Triangle, which is the opium and heroin trade. Uh-huh. 90% of the world's heroin comes from the seeds that are produced between Afghanistan, through Pakistan, India, Bangladesh, Burma, Nepal, Sri Lanka. 90% of the world's heroin. And it's called the Golden Triangle because they just shuffle it through and then shuffle it out like it's a... So I reported on that and uh, started being threatened. And then at the same time I was reporting on... This is back when, post 9-11, the United States was running rendition programs everywhere. They were just stealing people off the streets, taking them to black op sites, and those people wouldn't be seen again for months, if ever again. And this was happening all over the Muslim world. I ended up in Bangladesh, where I'm from, because one of my Bengali friends who was working, who was an attorney with Human Rights Watch at the time, sent me a case of these three kids who were just in Bangladesh visiting their family, Americans who were scooped up off the street and disappeared. So I did a whole three-month investigative thing into it and found out where they were. And I did this whole thing on extraordinary rendition. This is while I was living over there. And all of a sudden, I was being followed for like... I was just being followed. There was nowhere I wasn't going where I wasn't being followed. Wait a second, wait a second. You found them? We found where they were taken. We'd never... I never found them. Oh. But we tracked it all the way to they were in Egypt. We don't know where in Egypt. We don't know. But and at the time, why it was a big deal is because it was unknown that the United States even had black op sites in Egypt. They knew they had them in Germany. They knew that one existed in uh, Guantanamo Bay. They knew one existed somewhere in sub-Saharan Africa. I don't remember where. But like there were these known black sites where they were taking people. And then Egypt wasn't on that list. But we tracked it to Egypt, and when we published about it, I just started being followed. By who? Uh, We think it was Indian intelligence who was in cahoots with the United States at the time. You know, enemy of my enemy is my friend. Okay. They're very, like, anti-Muslim in India. That's 
like off the chain right now. Like they're trying to de-citizen strip citizenship from Muslims in the country who they're saying weren't there pre-1940. It's a whole thing. Anyway, long story short, all that happened. And then my dad had a quadruple bypass. I was actually supposed to fly to uh, an Indian university to do a lecture on this the following week. And I didn't because I had to fly home because we didn't know if my dad was going to make it. And then while I was home for my dad's bypass, some randomly, I don't know why, like within a week or two of being home, me and a friend started dating. I was going to say, when did, when did a friend come into the picture? Oh, so. So then it was like. Yeah. Not going right. to go back and. Leaving. Not going back. Yeah. Which was uh, hard because. You know, I had prepared my whole life to do that. So mm-hmm. I was like, fine. So the same wire, I started working in the United States as a journalist. I worked for the Tribune Publishing Company. Every story I was writing was being edited to not the story. And overseas, you're not like edited and censored like this. And I had only worked as a journalist overseas prior to that. I had never worked as a journalist in the United States. But I was just, every single thing I wrote was censored. Like I wrote an environmental story about how in New York State, you know, when they recycle plastic bottles, those are turned into carbon fibers, right? Did you know that? Uh, no. Oh, yeah. So they take that and they would shred it and uh-huh. your carpet fibers in your house are all made from that. Uh-huh. But someone has to do that work. So New York State was paying, had same contract with the same company for like 30 years. They were paying them 0.7 cents per bottle that they were collecting, recycling, turning into carpet fibers. All of a sudden, that company lost the contract. And a new company got the contract for four cents per bottle, which makes no sense. If you're paying someone 0.7 cents per bottle, mm-hmm. and they've still got a million dollar business, several million. Why would you then start paying someone four cents per bottle? So I looked into the whole thing and it was Assemblyman Joseph Crowley's brother-in-law that got the new contract. So I wrote a whole story on it. I could not get anyone to pick it up. Not one person would run the story. Wow. That's how censored you are. So I quit. I said, I'm not doing this. I'm like, if I ever live overseas again, maybe I'll go back to it, but I'm not going to be a journalist this way here. And I didn't have the fight in me to like go fight the power in the system. Yeah. yeah. Too. I was already fighting the power of like eight other things. But I, after that, I was like, this sucks. Nobody would pick up the story. Wow. So you left your career behind and decided to do what? Like, how did you decide what to do next? Well, I was already leading programs for Landmark, and they had been courting me to come on staff because I was really effective at what I was doing there. They convinced me to go on staff, and then I was on staff at Landmark for seven years. Wait, how'd you end up starting going to Landmark at first? My family had done it in the early 90s, and a lot of people in my community, and I was like, "Mm, don't talk to me about Landmark. Fuck you. And then Afreen did it in like 2003. And then in 2004, she was just like, I don't give a shit. You're doing this. She's like, I'm putting the deposit down right now. You're doing Mm -hmm. this. So I did it. And then that's actually what got me overseas. Because I did the the landmark forum. And in the advanced course, which I did a week later, they were like, what is the free future you're creating? I'm like, well, I always wanted to be an internationally working journalist. And then, boom, the tsunami happened. And a week later, I got the job offer. Yeah, it was all in the advanced course. Why? Because it it set you up to say yes. It set you up to. Well, I think I don't know if I would have articulated it this way at the time. I think energetically you vibrate at a certain frequency, and other things. The only things available to you are other things that are at that frequency. 
nothing outside, you know, where electricity, so nothing outside the frequency you're vibrating at is available to you when you're at whatever frequency you're at. So I think it changes, like that kind of uh, transformational, group transformational process, it changes your frequency significantly. But it's also that, you know, whatever you focus on expands. And before you, before I did Landmark, I would say I always focused on why things couldn't be or how things could go wrong. So then you have that. And post-landmark, you focus on what you're creating in the future and what you're intending and what how you want things to look. And then you have that because literally it's like you focus on it, it's going to expand and get bigger. And then the final piece is if you add the landmark network into the new vibration and the new way of kind of focusing, you just have everything you need in the community. So I stood up and said that the job offer when it came a week later came from someone who was connected to someone in that community. It's partially the training and partially the network and putting it out there that this is what you wanted. Yeah, but if not for the training, you wouldn't have the network. Right. So it all goes back to the training. How did you end up going from working at Landmark to starting Red Elephant? Or was that the first version of it that you started? Red Elephant was the first version of it. Yeah. And... Afreen did not want to go back to corporate America with a child. She didn't want to, we didn't want a nanny. We didn't want to do daycare. We didn't want other people raising our kid. No offense to anyone who does that. Yeah. You know, we that's the reality of the world. You have to have help. Um, but we were really committed to not doing that. We just, it's not what we wanted for him. She made almost double what I made. Mm-hmm. Took a year off. So it was like we went from like, let's jet to Paris for the weekend to we're eating ramen noodles so you can be at home. You know, so it was like I was ready to go back to my former lifestyle. Mm-hmm. Because <laughs> <laughs> we had a much nicer lifestyle when she worked. You know, it was just we were more cushed and we were more like, I don't know, we just had a lot of money. <laughs> yeah. So I wanted to go back to that. She was like, I can't do it. So what happened? So she said, I don't want to go back, so we need to start our own so thing? She, I said, okay, here's, I said, here's my term. Here's how I'll agree. You have to get your first client within a week. Because that way, in my mind, it was like, then she'll see this isn't going to be easy. Mm-hmm. Homegirl got her first client that day. She was mm-hmm. like, yeah, you want to watch something? Watch this. She got her first client that day. I was like, okay, I got it. And what was the client for? Like, what was the... Uh, she, she, was, she went to an acupuncture appointment that day. And her acupuncturist was complaining about having no help to plan her daughter's wedding. So Freen's like, I'm a planner. I'm an event planner. You should hire me. And she was like, I didn't know you were an event planner. So she was like, I plan events for Richard Branson. I run his whole nonprofit leg. You should totally hire me. And she hired her on the spot. Right. You guys were doing events. And then it and then became just- a coaching thing. That is such a perfect uh, story of how a business can grow just through your network. You just have to know a couple of mavens. Yeah, we hit six figures before we had a website. Yeah, that makes sense. I mean, your, your, uh, your service is high-priced. You only need a couple of clients. No, back then it wasn't high priced. For events? No, back then we were doing them for like there are handbags more expensive than what we what? were. What? How would you, how little <laughs> can you charge for an event? We were we event? weren't really doing multiple day production then. We were only doing oh, gotcha. one day production. Okay. And I think what we were charging at the time was twelve hundred dollars. It's like we charged because we had no business sense. Neither one of us were business owners. We we didn't know anything about starting or running a business. So we charged the one-day event producers like $1,200. And for them, they were getting a steal because everywhere else they got quoted like six grand, eight grand. So they were like, $1,200, we'll take it. Um, 
And then we'd do it, and then we'd have to pay out our team on the day of. And by the time we paid out our team, we'd be left with like two or three hundred dollars mm-hmm. for all that work. And we were like, "This has to change." We don't know what because we, we didn't have a coach. We didn't. We weren't working with anyone, especially at that first event with Rui Perez. I think it was like twelve hundred dollars the contract price, and he made one hundred twenty-five thousand dollars. So we we're like, "This is horseshit." Well, wait a second. He just started his business. How did he do that? He put seventy-five people in a room taught them about brand and sold them a private branding package. Afreen worked with him really closely about creating what that event looked like. But at the time, I think he had also hired a coach who was working with him about doing selling events. So I think from both sides, because when he initially came to Afreen, he wanted to do a launch party. And Afreen was like, why? Yeah. You know, sell something. You can make money. And then at the same time, I think his coach said something like that to him. So that's how I think he came to deciding to sell something instead and he had just his last corporate job he was on the team that we did the starbucks branding and one of the guys on his graphic design team when he started branding for the people was the guy that did the logo okay the same guy that did our logo by the way so he had all this credibility walking to the front of the room you know even if you hate starbucks no you can't ignore it absolutely it's one of the ones that everybody says when they talk about branding so to have that kind of credibility when you walk to the front of the room and then out of like 75 people, I think he said, I'm going to do this for like 15 of you and it's going to cost, but I'm going to do it. And people yeah. just clamored to the back of the room, you know? Well, it was a done for you service too. Yeah. Now I think, I think it's the model most people do now. I think they're doing like the done with you or they incubate, yeah. they talk it out, they work it out and then they give it to a designer. Interesting. So you do this stuff with Re Perez. You see how much money he's making off these events. Freen's practically given him the play-by-play on how to do it. Mm-hmm. How do you transform that into the business that it became, which was yeah. not doing people's events, but teaching entrepreneurs how to do events? We accidentally, we kind of fell into it. We're from a big network with that reason. And there were so many people from that network, like, turn us into Re. What did you do for Re? Re had like solid uh, business understanding and knowledge and Re had the support. Like he had a VA, he had people on his team to manage the fallout of the event. Mm. And most of the people we, that were coming to us, we could tell they either wouldn't be able to handle the business or they wouldn't be able to sell because most people just don't sell. It's not, it's not a skill we're taught in any of our formal okay. education. So that's how the whole speaker mastermind that we launched that you were, you were in the second or third version of it, I think. Yeah. The second or third time we ran it. But that's where it came from. We were like, people need, we need to get people ready to do events. And what we're going to handle in the program we're selling is both trainings, either learning how to sell and formulate the talk or handling the back end of the business. So by the time you do sell, your business doesn't fall apart trying to manage the new business. Because mm-hmm. a lot of people do get crushed by the new business. They fall down administratively and then they can't recover. So that was the whole point of the program. We recognized those two pain points as the ones that needed to get fixed so that we could have more clients that did the big three-day events. And by then we had worked with several people running their own events and we had both been selling from the stage for years in other companies we worked with. So we had a bit of a system that we were playing with. And then we were just, you know, using our clients as guinea pigs saying, hey, at this part, don't do this. Why don't you do this instead? And they would do it and it would work. And then we would let our own events. So then we'd go like test our kind of formula that we came up with and we'd read the room and see that this really worked and this didn't work. We just kept hacking it. We just kept 
tweaking it like a really good funnel. We just kept tweaking it and tweaking it and tweaking it and tweaking it until we arrived at a system that just kept converting every time. Uh, you were with us, I think. Yeah, you were there at that big, one of the big events we did at the Rose and Shingle Creek, like five or six years ago in Orlando. In Orlando. It's a huge hotel. We had to like walk a mile to get to the room because they were so far from the hotel rooms. That was the first event where we converted seven figures from the stage from our offer. And that was right after we had really like perfected the system. So then we were like, okay, this is, the system works. And by then, when we did that offer, by then we had already had like a year of people, people were netting six figures or more without fail using that system. So they used the system, they made six figures net no matter what. But we were still kind of like, okay, that's been happening for like a year, but it's going to fail at some point. You know, you just wait for the other shoe to drop or something to go wrong. And it hasn't yet. So the system's still working. So while we update and innovate all our content all the time, we don't mess with that system. We figured something out about it and it's still working and it translated online when we went online. We had our annual big three-day conference. It was scheduled for the week after shelter-in-place took effect. So obviously we had to cancel it. But what we did was we moved the event online. It was our largest event ever because there were so many people who were planning. There was like 200-something people planning to fly in for the event. But then everyone who wasn't planning to come to the event but wanted to was also now available to come to the event. So we had so many people in that online event. And I think it was the first one in my industry, at least, first three-day event after shelter-in-place took place. And we were like a week in. We didn't even know if we should do it because we were like, people are dealing with the trauma of being quarantined and they can't go out. Luckily enough, at the time, the president and the government had no idea what they were talking about and was telling everyone that this was going to be over soon. So people weren't messed up yet. They were still really hopeful. They were still planning for the future. They were still spending money. So we took this event online. It was a huge event and it did really well and it converted really well. And we were like, okay, the system works online. Yeah. Just works. Now, there are a couple of things we've tweaked about it since, like how we do the post-event sales and stuff like that. But the system hasn't changed a bit. And we've had now all of our clients that have come to us in the last year using the system. And we just used it. We did our event again two weeks ago. And we use the system again. And it just it's still working. Our net six figures or more statistic has not been messed up. Meaning after all of the expenses of the event are paid. Yes. You right. are left with six figures of or right. more of profit. So I did your whole program and I did I did my own event that was very successful in some ways. And I it was so exhausting. <laughs> so much work. Um, but I ended up I don't know, I ended up like trying to look at the numbers and obviously you have to do like you got to do a certain critical mass of sales in order for this stuff to make sense and I just kind of went to I think part of the most exhausting part for me was getting people to show up and wanting people to show up. And I kind of like weighing it against the online. I was like, I don't know if I, is it more effective? I questioned it and I ended up, yeah, I ended up going online more so because I just thought, God, the overhead in events is just so big and there's the energy, the output and the needing people to show up. And it's so much harder to get people to show up in person. And even though I know there's a bigger connection in person, Mm -hmm. like, does it really... Does it really fill the void of all, you know, all this extra work and expense? Does it- I think it depends on your price point. And I think there's like pre-pandemic, a pre-pandemic answer to your question and a post-pandemic. Pre-pandemic, it was all about price point. You know, if you're, and it's all about the duration of the event. You can sell something different in a one day than you can in a three day. 
the give us an example trust factor, huh? Give us an example. So in a one day, essentially, if someone comes to a one day event with you, they're going to spend a total of like four or six hours with you that day. That builds one level of trust. Right. If they come to a multi day event, they're going to fly in the night before the event starts. You'll have some sort of evening engagement activity that night. Then they're going to spend three days with you where they're with you from morning till night. It's not like go back to life and go back to your kids and go back to your spouse and go back to your bed. You're literally in a container where they're with you for about 40 hours. At the end of 40 hours, they're ready to spend different money and different time investment with you than they are at the end of four to six hours. Mm -hmm. And more of them are ready. That's one piece of it. The second piece of it is in a one-day event, four to six hours, half the room's not even going to be known. It doesn't really create community the way a multiple-day event can create. In a four to six-hour event, half the people are going to walk out of there with most people not knowing their name. In a three, in a 40-hour, three-day container, it's really like you have to willfully try to not be seen to not be seen and not be engaged with and not kind of formulate into a community. Especially the aspect of being in a community, when you make an offer that people find attractive, even if it's high ticket, and couple that with they've now spent the last 40 hours with you. They know how you work. They know how you coach. They know how you engage. They understand your frameworks and your systems and your processes. And they have this community of people around them. It's a much more expensive decision they can make than in four to six hours with you in a one day. And it's also like the filling of events, the way you fill it with, I don't know why we didn't offer this to you. We should have if we didn't, or if we did, you should have done it. I don't know. But that's why you don't do the production. Your only job, we tell all our hosts, like if you're going to work on something other than filling the event, you're going to hate life and you're going to hate the event. You got to give everything but filling the event to everyone else. Because just filling the event is taxing. It's a whole different level of effort. But it's rewarding and you don't really mind it when you're not trying to find a venue and trying to find a caterer and trying to find the AV guys and trying to find, you know, there's like the million things that go into it. You know, I I find when I have to do both, I get resentful about one or the other. I hired Kathleen. Kathleen took care of a lot of it, actually. It was just filling the event and like preparing for and then delivering the content. And I ended up trying to make my life easier. I was like basically the only content and that did not make my life easier. That made my life much harder. By the end of this event, because it was like all day, Right. Like it was like nine to five. By f- I remember by like four o'clock, I'm like standing there in my heels, like feeling like I'm going to faint and I'm dizzy. And I'm like, Pia, you can't like fall down right now. You have to finish this. Yeah. <laughs> you have to finish the speech and you have to do it strong. It was so much. It was so yeah. well, energetically. It's a lot. You know, when you're the when you're the container for like 75 people. How have you translated that? Like, what have you learned translating that online? Can you create that same kind of connection and community that you are creating in a three-day event? Can you do that online? Uh, I don't know. I think so, but I'm not sure yet. I don't think it's been long enough. The the truth of the matter is when people would, it's just a different thing. People, now we're more in a volume format than we are in a high-touch format. You know, high touch, you can drop, you've seen us drop them. You can drop $18,000 offers, $25,000 offers. And because there's so much touch and trust and engagement, people are willing to invest. Mm -hmm. The bottom line is when you or I are on a Zoom call, we can easily turn the camera off and go run and see what our kid is doing. We can easily turn the camera off and mute ourselves to take a call from a client. And that level of distraction or lack of focus, you just don't get when you're in person. 
in person, you're not going to go run to give your kid a chicken nugget. He will have already been set up with someone to watch him. In person, if your client calls when you're in the meeting room, you're not going to answer the phone in the middle of a general session. So there's these things that we'll do and engage in when we participate online that we just wouldn't do live, which I think distracts how much touch there is between the host and whoever's attending the meeting. But what we've done to counter that is we're not teaching the content in a way in which it's sit there and learn from me. It's this is what the assignment is. And then we put them in breakout rooms of two to four people. And then we have our coaches, our program coaches and our team jump room to room to work with people. And we've been doing this for a few events now. We just did it two weeks ago. And I mean, the if you go onto our Facebook page or into the Facebook group, you'll see people say that they're this was the first time they had that experience of being intimate and in community at an event since the pandemic started. And I think it's because we're using the breakout room so much. I think when they stay in the general session room and there's 300 of them, you know, they're just one little tiny box on a screen. When they go into a breakout room and there's two or three of them and they're connecting in that way again and having to be face to face, I think that's the only place I know of where it's where, where the laptop isn't an issue. It's not a barrier. But in the general session room, it's a barrier for sure. Yeah, that's interesting you say that because I've actually had that experience recently coaching a, a big group of people and trying to engage people and realize I needed to put them all into breakout rooms. And even if I'm not in the breakout rooms, just having a smaller group and being able to interface is forcing people into engagement. You're right. Like behind right. the, it's like we don't want to. I'm totally guilty of that. When I'm on a Zoom with a bunch of people, I'm constantly turning my video off and like taking care of things because you can, because my attention span is zip exactly well it's hard to you, you know in our defense i'm like you it's hard to have attention span on a device like just fries your brain it does so i get it god but no the breakout rooms are genius so many people at our event a few weeks said oh my god afreen anyman you were awesome we came because we heard of you but those breakout rooms where you weren't <laughs> that's where the jam was you know like and we're like great that's the best news wow i think the other thing pia that really made a difference for us is this time we didn't shoot it from our office. Uh, one of our colleagues, his name's Mira Beck. He produces events for, he's one of the big event producers on the AV side for all these coaching events for the last 10 years. Uh, Mira literally gutted his whole second floor and created a studio with six different sets in it. Um, so, and then like you stay at his house. So he, we went to Tampa, we stayed at his place and we shot the whole event from the studio. And it's like set up with like 12 screens and you have the whole audience in front of you and your confidence monitor and your everything, right? And there was a, I think for us, there was a pretty significant state change between sitting at a desk and being in front of a laptop to actually standing up and leading like we would have on a stage in front of an audience. It completely, I think, refocused and reoriented the way in which we had been leading. Because I also had the experience of leading an event like I would have if I had been leading an in-person event. And I had I hadn't had that yet since the pandemic started, but I think it went really effective because just how we've how we're how we closed at the event and how we've been closing since the event, we're already past where we had targeted to be. Wow, so, that's a great point. So so really, yes, we are we kind of um, we fall into whatever environment we put ourselves in and our yeah, like to your point, state change putting yourself yeah. in a position where you actually feel like you're on stage and this is like a much more powerful thing is going to make you 
about more powerful presenter and thus translate more effectively to the people behind the camera. Yeah, because on my on my little MacBook, I can do up to 49 boxes. And when I see those 49 boxes, they're like this big. On his 12 screens, I could see everybody. And I literally, like, the whole audience was in front of me. So my leading was just different. Right. So I think that also has something to do with the effectiveness in a huge way. I love that. And, I mean, Re is the... You said that the first event that he did was for Done For You Services, but my understanding is most of the events you've done really since then have been more for group coaching stuff. Is this, do you still help people do events to sell Done For You Services? Yeah. You do? Like what kind of yeah. services? Um, all, diff- all different kinds of services. Like one of, our, one of our biggest clients is someone who teaches actors how to get cast. So she's a former actor herself. She's one of the most, she's a huge character actress and her whole business is to show actors how to get cast. So it's all different. It's all curated. It depends on the actor. It depends on the role. It's not a, it's not a group coaching program. It's a, she has to get one-on-one with people to figure out how to get them cast. And we've been producing her this style event, which we also moved virtual last October for six years. And it's huge for her to be able to sell that at a three-day event. And then another one of our clients that we just did an event like this for was she works in the interior design industry. She deals with interior design and other interior designers. Mark Porteous just did his event and his event isn't about coaching or there's no coaching in it actually at all. It's all about creating uh, an affiliate alliance. So that his offer is actually uh, an affiliate partnership for a year where he curates all the different partnerships in the community and who pr- who pr- supports whose launch and who supports whose event and stuff like that so that it can kind of magnify everyone's individual marketing and selling effort. So there's a lot of different products and services in the industry that we've sold, but all the high ticket stuff is probably more other than the branding. No, that's not true because we also did, uh, you know, it's a different type of branding, but we've done events that are solely there to sell messaging packages and copywriting and copywriting support. So it might not all be coaching. Most of it's related to the coaching mm-hmm. business, even if it's not Or there's a coaching element to it. It's kind of a hybrid. Nah, I mean, the copying, the messaging event wasn't really a hybrid. Just done for you. It was just done for you. Reeves was just done for you. Amanda's was pretty done for you. I think think it depends. I think it also depends on how comfortable you are selling. Because the done for you is usually in the, starts around the 20 range and goes up to like the 40 to 50 range. 50,000. Yeah. So so you have to be okay making an offer that starts at $25,000 from the stage, which most people, when they initially think about, they like fall out of their chair or faint because they can't think of selling that kind of a program from the stage. I think why people think there's so much group coaching sold in this format is because most people are comfortable selling at a much less, at a much lower price point. And the lower price point equals group coaching. You can't sell $25,000 programs as group coaching. Well, you could, but it's probably not going to be very effective. Right. Well, if it's over a course of a year. I don't know, because group group coaching is you don't get individualized coaching. Yeah. I don't know. I'm in a $30,000 group coaching program right now. <laughs> a $25,000 group? 30000 yeah. Yeah, Isn't I wouldn't crazy? do that. But there's so oh. much, but there's, uh, but it's a, it's an organization. Like there's, uh, you know, there's lots of group coaching, but there's also lots of calls. So you get individual you get attention. individual attention whenever you How want. How did you purchase it? Well, you know, I'm an easy sell. I'm on. 
you know, on a sales call, but I was like ready to buy it when I got on. The yeah, sales but you call. didn't purchase it as an offer from the stage. No. Yeah, so I don't know no. that. I don't know how well a thirty thousand dollar group coaching program would convert. Gotcha. From the I always thought Susan Evans stuff was that price point. It was when I did her first program. It was a ten thousand dollar offer from the stage. Okay. In my five years with her, that same ten thousand dollar offer. By the time I left, she was selling. By the time I left, probably for sixteen, and that was for a group coaching program that included private coaching. It was limited. You only got like one call a month or nine for the year, something like that. I don't remember, but you still got private coaching, which justified her higher price point. Right, right, right. When I went into her private mastermind where she was my coach and I talked to her two to three times a month, I paid her $48,000 a year. Well, I'm just curious because like events are, you know, any, any small business marketing their services, whatever they are, it's like you got to go all in on certain strategies and to me like you can go all in on events but it's that would that's what you should do it's like you know your coach your um your acting coach as an example it's like it sounds like the event that she does with you once or twice a year that's once. that's a major that's a big chunk of her business yeah well and we we do four events smaller events leading into that one event Okay. So, right. her, so this is like the whole mar- like her st- marketing strategy all year is like we do yeah. these four events and move into this big one. I make the certain sales and that's where I make my money. Yeah. And it grows year over year. It grows like the smaller events grow, which leads a bigger event to grow. Yes. And then as it grows, she's able to scale and leverage herself out of the business more and more. She's got a whole team of coaches now. And Gotcha. That's a great point. This is the kind of stuff that you need to do over and over and over again in order to build momentum yeah. and learn from your mistakes and learn from what worked and what didn't. Like you said, I mean, it's a perfect summary of how everyone should build their business, I think, which is, you know, we did it and then we saw what worked and we tweaked it and we did it again and we did it again and we did it again and we perfected it. And mm-hmm. that's how you build a million dollar business. It is. I would say what the year we went to seven figures, Everyone's like, how'd you do it? How'd you do it? How'd you do it? How'd you get to seven figures so fast? Uh, I would say it was from everything that failed. We failed so much that year. That year, if I had to honestly estimate what percentage of what we did worked, I would say it was under 25%. Everything else failed. But the 25%. How are you defining fail and and success? I'll give you an example. We did, this is in the days of live streaming. You know, before Facebook Live was a thing and live streaming went insane. Back then, to do live streaming, you had to go to a studio and you had to have a live stream channel. and You had to broadcast on the live stream channel and you had to insert WordPress into the live stream channel to be able to put up your links. And, your you know, there was a whole process to live stream that isn't today's process. So back then, we would do launches over live stream. So we did this, this is in 2012 or 2013. We did this multiple affiliate launch with all these people. We were selling our event product. It was an event in a box. It was called Everything But The Stage. We had 40 affiliates. We had like 1,500 people opt in. And then we had 394 people show up live to the live stream. Now, the offer we did for our product was normally 1997, but we were like, it doesn't cost us anything. Let's just give it away and see if people, you know, like comes with a program, comes with some calls with... Kevin, who was our guy at the time, uh, before he moved to Japan and got married. But we were like, okay, we're going to sell for $5.97. So we did this launch stream. And doing a live stream at the time cost about ten grand. you have to understand. 
So we did this live stream. We sold it for five ninety seven, and you have to understand we in person convert around thirty five to forty percent regularly. There's three hundred ninety four people on the live stream. Two people purchased. <laughs> so two people purchasing a five hundred ninety seven dollar product means we just made back less than twelve hundred dollars of the ten thousand we invested. Plus all okay. the time. <laughs> Plus all the time and yeah. the investment and the team and yeah. everything, right? So we're like, okay, fuck that. We're going to do this again and we're going to get it right. Sorry, I curse sometimes. We're going to do this right. We're going to do it again. So we surveyed everyone who was there and said, why didn't you buy? Like, what was the thing? Every single one of them said it seemed too good to be true. How could you be packing that much value, that much this, that much that, that much coaching, that much program into $597 a week? They all felt like it was $597 because as soon as they got in, they were going to be bumped with upgrade to this and upgrade to that and that we were going to make money on the back end from it somehow. That's how a majority of the people felt. Wow. We weren't going to, but that's how they felt. We did the same exact live stream 30 days later, less affiliates, because they didn't make money from the first one, so why do they want to affiliate again? Less affiliates, and we had 180 people on the live stream the second time. Same offer. I didn't change the offer one bit, except this time we decided to charge $14.97 for the offer, the program, and everything. Didn't change any, a single aspect of the offer. Soon as we dropped the offer, like 45 people went to the cart and bought the offer. Wow. On the replays, I think 13 or 14 people more bought the offer because there was no question of value. It was a really great lesson for me because it taught me how much underpricing something can mess with its value, right? It yes. was a big, big lesson for me. Um, but the, you know, at 597, we had 200 out of 394 people buy. At fourteen ninety seven, ultimately we had fifty eight out of about one hundred and eighty buy. Wow! And the only difference was the price. The only difference was the price. That's amazing. in fact the first time was more produced. We had hair, we had makeup, we had studio yeah. lighting. The second time was less produced. We did it out of our living room. That could have been to it too. At the time, I don't think it was. I mean, it could have. I don't think that's what it was at the time. That's a great story. I would call that. Let's just say it was the price because I, I absolutely think we know that that happens and you've yeah. got some really good stats there. Two two out of 400 versus like 50%. That's crazy. Yeah. That's that's amazing. Okay. So the lesson is price is Don't relative. Yeah. <laughs> Don't have priced your shit. You are, I always tell people that you are losing as many clients as you are not losing by pricing it affordably. You think you're like, you don't want to be too expensive. Like there are plenty of people who do not want to buy things that are too cheap because they don't believe the values there and they shouldn't. Yeah. I, listen, I grew up like that. My mom would go to pay less three or four times a year to replace her shoes. My dad would buy one pair of shoes from like Ferragamo or something and wear them for, well, not Ferragamo. My dad didn't even know what Ferragamo was, but he'd buy like one pair of shoes from something. I think he went to like Floorshine, I think it was called. Okay. Someplace like that. I don't know. And he would, wear it, he would wear it for like four years. And he'd end up spending a lot less money. Yeah. I think that lessens all over life. And I think it just goes back to uh, scarcity mindset versus abundant mindset. Yes. How did you move from scarcity to abundance? Difficultly. <laughs> <laughs> I was raised by uh, immigrants from Bangladesh, which was the poorest country of the world at the time when they moved over here. You know, I grew up in a conversation about there's never any, there's never money for that. We'd be like, can we go to McDonald's? There's not money for that. Um, and how I moved was I realized, because Afreen did not grow up that way. She grew up in a very much abundant mindset kind of household. After we got married, the constant chasm between us was she was a yes to everything and I was a no to everything. And we worked on that. And then we had a son and she was a yes to everything and I was a no to everything. 
And then we worked on that. And then we had a business. And she was a yes to everything. And I was a no to everything. And you find out, you know, for me, it was watching how, and we deal with it today. You know, some of the stuff never goes away. But watching how constrained she would get at her ability to create and innovate and do things and actually seeing how that impacted her was the only thing that really had me go, okay, what am I doing here that's producing that result? Because you know, Fran, she's very laid back. She's very chill. She's not fussy. She's not difficult in the ways I am. You know, I'm way more difficult than she is. So when she gets like that, it's like, what would have her get like that? So that was watching kind of the emotional impact of scarcity mindset on my wife was a big deal. And then as my son started to get older, watching him absorb some of my conversations for what's not possible versus her conversations for what could be possible. I noticed he was by like six, he was pessimistic. And I was like, this doesn't, that's not, where's he getting this? At first it was a mystery, you know, of course. Right. (laughs) Why is he this way? Wow. And so, yeah, so it was actively, it's something I actively worked on and still work on. I I still, my gut reaction, Afrina will be like, I need $500 to go do this. It's $500. And, you know, $500 for any growing and decent sized business is like, should be some level of disposable income. Absolutely. But she'll be like, I need $500 for this. I'll be like, no, we don't need it. You know, like my gut reaction is like, so it's still a work in progress. And it's just, you know, some of that wiring. It's, I don't think the, I think the job is not to fix that wiring. I think it's to catch it and then do something different. I love that. Uh, I think that's really helpful for anyone to hear too, because everyone's got some pieces of scarcity, some much more than others. And we're all yeah, it's a part of our acculturation. It's the yeah. conversation we're in. We're kind of born into it. Absolutely. But I think the more we work on it, especially as entrepreneurs, um, the, the, the more our businesses will thrive because if everything is a no in your business, you're never going to grow it. Right. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. To learn more about how Red Elephant can help you make a bigger impact in the world, go to redelephantinc.com and join the herd. One thing that shouldn't have surprised me, but did, was that all Iman had to do was raise the price of his offer at one of his events, and all of a sudden, the sales started coming in. It is such a great representation of how price does convey value, and being underpriced can absolutely hurt you sometimes. But the lesson isn't, raise your prices and you'll get more sales. There is a lot that goes into finding the perfect price and how to raise your prices strategically. And it's something that I love to teach and I love to talk about in my programs. I think the better lesson here is to test, test, test. Stick with something. Try it again. Amon didn't throw the whole thing out when it didn't work. They tried it again with a tweak. That is the best thing you can do in your business in every aspect of it. If something doesn't work, try something else slightly different but keep trying. Don't just throw the baby out with the bathwater. When something isn't working, there are any number of shifts that can make the difference. But you need to be in it for the long haul. And that means not taking a failure as a sign to get rid of that idea completely, but instead to try it again with adjustments and decide that you're going to find what works. Incorporate that thinking into everything you do in business And that may just be your next step to showing your business who's boss. Show Your Business Who's Boss is produced by Yellow House Media. 
Production coordinator is Lou Blazer. This episode is edited by Marty Seafelt. Creative direction by Steve Wastervall. Our theme music is Glass Prisms by Western Runners. 